All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're uh, like most people and you don't know exactly where all the Old Testament books are, an easy way to find it is just to open your Bible up to the middle. That'll probably put you in Psalms, and then you just hang a left through Job and Esther, and then you'll be right in Nehemiah. Today we're going to be reading Nehemiah 1. If you're using a Bible from under the chairs, it's in on page 398 of those Bibles. Again, that's Nehemiah 1, and we're going to be walking through the whole chapter this morning. But before we get there, there's two things I want to say about uh, us kind of going through an Old Testament book. You know, we've spent the last like 70 years in the book of Matthew, and now we're moving on to know, go through another book, and we chose one from the Old Testament. And the reason why is because of really three passages. So the first passage would be 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we read 2 Timothy 3.16 and we read the word Scripture, what probably comes in our mind is this book that we have in front of us, the Bible. We think of the Old and the New Testament. But when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, as he was writing it, and as Timothy opened up and read this letter for the first time, when he read the word Scripture, what he was thinking of would have been primarily the Old Testament. He would have thought of all those books that we usually consider old and boring and not relevant for our lives. But look at the language that Paul uses to describe it. He says it's breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And that includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That means that these lists of names, these boring lists of names that we're going to come to in Nehemiah 7 and 10 and 11 and 12 are just as inspired as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. God breathed out the words of Nehemiah just like he breathed out the words of Matthew and inspired those authors to write them down. Paul also says that all of it is profitable. That means that Nehemiah is just as profitable for us as the books of the New Testament. We can learn from them just as well as we can the ones that we might be more drawn to and more familiar with. The other two passages are essentially saying the same thing. The first one is 1 Corinthians 10.11. There Paul says, he's talking about the Old Testament saints. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then in Romans 15.4, he says, For whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, it was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul is saying that the Old Testament, all these books that come before the New Testament, including Nehemiah, they're there for our instruction, to give us examples to follow, to encourage us and provide us with hope. And so as we come through this book and as we walk through Nehemiah and we see how he responds to the situation that he's going to face today and as as we walk through the rest of the book with him, I don't want us to dismiss this as simply some historical story that doesn't really matter to us anymore. The Apostle Paul thought it was important enough to tell his people that these words matter to us. And they should. And so as we go through this book, I want us to have kind of those three things in mind. That this is inspired by God, it's profitable for us, 
and it exists to provide us with encouragement and hope as well as an example to follow. So with that in mind, let's read the first chapter. Verse 1 says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people." But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. God, we can pray with Nehemiah that you are Lord. You are the God of heaven and earth. You are great and awesome, and you keep your covenant with your people. You keep your steadfast love for us. You remain faithful always. And we can also confess with Nehemiah that it is us who don't remain faithful. It is us who act corruptly and who sin against You. And yet even in spite of our sin, You remain faithful to us. Even in spite of our sin, even when we were dead in our trespasses, You sent Christ into the world to redeem it and to redeem us, to save us from the penalty that we deserve. So we pray this morning that as we look at the words of Nehemiah, that we would understand that You are the same God today that You were then. And that You continue to be faithful to us. You continue to keep Your covenant and love for us. Even though we fall short on our end. Jesus, we thank You for Your sacrifice on our behalf. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.
So our main point this morning, as we're looking at this first chapter, this this prayer of Nehemiah in response to the situation of his uh, brothers back in Israel, the main point is that God remains faithful even when His people don't. That's what we're going to see come out of this prayer that Nehemiah prays on behalf of them. So, verse 1, right at the beginning, he says, these are the words of Nehemiah. This is here because... Originally, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were one book together. When it was written in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, they were one book. They were together. But when these books were translated into Greek, if you know anything about Hebrew and Greek, Hebrew has vowels underneath the letters. Greek has vowels just like English does. And so if you think about, uh, you know, when you're writing a paper, it's 12-point font, it's in Times New Roman, and then you change it to Courier New, and then it all of a sudden becomes like 18 pages long. Maybe students don't still do that today. That's what we did when I was in college. You change the font, your paper gets longer. That's kind of like what's happening here. It wouldn't fit on one scroll anymore, so they divided it into two. And our English Bibles are based on the Greek Old Testament ordering of books and not the Hebrew Bible. So that's why we have this second book. And that's why this verse is here explaining that the words of Ezra, which were before, have ended, and now these are the words of Nehemiah. These are what he is writing about what happened when he went to Israel to rebuild the walls. And kind of the big story of this book, you know, we're going to focus on pretty much a chapter at a time. But the main story, the overarching story of this book is the story of a God who renews a city, who rebuilds a city, and also renews its people as he does that. He's going to bring them back to their city. He's going to build them up. He's going to reestablish his covenant with them. And they're going to be renewed as his people. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this. But this morning, in this, this chunk, it's all about God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. He tells us that these things happened in the month of Kislev. For those of you who haven't memorized the Hebrew calendar, which I would assume is all of us, including myself, the month of Kislev is November and December, roughly. So that's when these things are happening. They're happening in the 20th year of the reign of, of King Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia. Since most of us don't really know Jewish history, I'm going to kind of give us a quick recap so we know what's going on on the world stage, what's happening in Israel's life. So, you know, Abraham was called by God. It was set apart to be kind of his chosen people. God was going to work primarily to bring a redeemer into the world through Abraham's descendants. The promise passed on from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. Then Jacob had the son, Joseph. If you know anything about Joseph, he had these crazy dreams that made all of his brothers hate him. So they sold him into slavery. In Egypt, he's taken down to Egypt. There he's a slave. While he's a slave there, uh, the king of Egypt finds out that Joseph is able to interpret dreams. And so he has this crazy dream about skinny cows and fat cows. And so he has Joseph come up to interpret this dream. And Joseph gets inspiration from God, understands this dream, and says there's going to be a famine that's going to come across the whole world. And because of that, we need to start saving food now so that we can provide food for our own people and for other people that are going to come to Egypt to get food. And that's exactly what they do. And eventually, Jacob's family, you know, the guys who sold Joseph into slavery, they're back in Israel. They're running out of food. And so they send people, he sends all of his sons down to Egypt to get food because there's food there because Joseph has provided it. 
And they find out that Joseph's there. They find out that Joseph has favor with this Pharaoh. And so they send everybody. The whole family moves down there. Seventy people move to Egypt. And they just flourish in the land of Egypt. They grow. They multiply. They, they spread like wildfire. But eventually, this Pharaoh comes along who hates them. He subjects them to slavery. He kills some of them. He kills their infants. And the people cry out to God and say, remember us, deliver us from underneath this harsh Pharaoh. God raises up Moses, and through the means of the Passover and the Exodus, he brings them out of Egypt and establishes a covenant with his people. He gives them his law. He tells them what he's going to do for them if they keep his law, and immediately they break it. And then they wander around in the wilderness for a while. Finally, he takes them into the land and he says, if you keep my covenant in the land, you will stay here. It will go well for you. You will prosper. You will enjoy long life. All these good things will come to you if you keep my commands. But they don't. So eventually, God brings in, he rises up enemies to come in and take them out. And around 740 B.C., the Assyrian Empire comes into the northern kingdom of Israel and just demolishes it, takes the people off into captivity. Then a little while later, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he comes in like a wrecking ball and just levels Jerusalem. He takes out the wall, he takes out the temple, and then he takes the people with him back to Babylon. So there's a, a small group who are left in Jerusalem. All the scholars, all the priests, all the leaders, all the people that you would want to be with you, they are taken away from the city. And Jerusalem is destroyed. Fortunately for them, just like God promised in the book of Isaiah, about 50 years later, King of King Cyrus, who's the king of Persian, they come in and they destroy Babylon. And they become the new world leader. And a year, just a year after this guy comes to power, when he takes over Babylon, he inherits all of the Babylonian empire, and that included Israel and Judah. And in 538 BC, he issues this edict to all the Jews and says, if you want to go back to your land, you can but most of them were happy where they were at. Most of them had started new lives. So not everyone wanted to go back. Just a, a small portion goes back over the next three years, and then they, they start rebuilding the temple. And that's what the first six chapters of Ezra are about. They're about the rebuilding process of the temple. The temple's finished in 516 B.C., so it takes them about 20 years to build this temple, which couldn't even compare to Solomon's temple or Herod's temple after it. And then Ezra goes to Jerusalem. He shows up there about 13 years before Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes place in about 445 B.C. So this is about 450 years or so before Jesus is born. These people go back to Jerusalem because Nehemiah gets this report. He wants to, to show up there under this king and rebuild Jerusalem and its walls. And so that's, that's what's going on. That's what the time frame is here. As Nehemiah is serving under this king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, and he's serving as his cupbearer. So he would have had a high status and a high position in the Persian government, in this, this huge 
huge empire. They would have been at their greatest point right now as Nehemiah is writing. And he tells us that he's in Susa. This is their winter capital. So he is in this warm citadel serving this powerful king doing really whatever he wants except that he has to drink whatever the king drinks. So if the king gets poisoned, he dies first. So not a great job, but still power and status and warmth. And then his life changes when these guys come from Jerusalem. This Hanani, one of his brothers, comes with certain men and he says, how's it going there? What's going on? And look at what he says. He says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The people are in great trouble and shame. The wall is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. In the ancient world, if a city didn't have walls, it didn't have defenses. Anyone could come in and do whatever they wanted. Because of that, the people were in great shame and trouble. And the rest of this chapter, really the rest of the book of Nehemiah, is how he responds to this short statement by one of his brothers who he doesn't even know. And before we move on, before we look at Nehemiah's prayer, I I think we should feel the weight of how he responds to his brother, to his brothers from somewhere else. Because I think that as American Christians, especially, we have a very, 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 out of about ten more of those, insignificant consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world. We have our family members, right? Scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, he is our brother or sister. There are people all across the world who are persecuted because of the gospel, who you know, are just our brothers and sisters who go without food or clean water or who die and suffer under diseases that could easily be treated. People who need encouragement. There are Christians all across the world who we disregard completely. And Nehemiah easily could have done that. He's in this castle. He's got this position. He works for the king. He could have said, I'm just too busy to care about them up in Jerusalem. Just like we say we're too busy to care about the people in China or India or pick any other country over there. And yet, Nehemiah weeps and mourns and fasts and prays for days because he understands that just as God has united him together with his people, he should suffer with them. He should care about them. He should have compassion for them that moves him to action on their behalf. And I hope, I hope that God's Spirit doesn't allow us to have that kind of lax attitude towards fellow Christians anymore. I hope that He doesn't allow us to disregard them. I hope He doesn't allow us to neglect them. I hope He works in us and gives us an understanding of our relationship to them. Because when you think about it, you wouldn't let you know, someone in your immediate family go through a situation like that without acting. If one of my daughters or my sister or my mom or dad were suffering, I would do something about it. And yet, this relationship that should matter to us more than anything else, our relationship to Christ and our relationship to other people in Christ, we dismiss. 
So I hope that through seeing in the rest of this book, Nehemiah's response to this situation, to what his brothers are going through, would cause us to change. Would allow the Spirit to change us through it. In verse 4, we see what he does. He says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying. Later, he's going to tell us that he prayed day and night. And the real question here that any of us probably have when we get to this point is how long did he do it for? You know, was it just like a quick, dear God, help them if it's your will? And then he's done. That's what we do. Nehemiah says he wept and mourned for days. He continued fasting and praying. And he doesn't do anything else until chapter 2, which is in the month of Nisan. That's March or April. So from November or December to March or April, he was mourning and weeping and fasting and praying day after day after day after day, day and night. He's doing these things on behalf of these people that he doesn't even know. He continues in prayer for them. And the rest of the chapter is what he prays. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The first thing we see here in Nehemiah's prayer is that he knows who God is. He understands that He is Lord. He is God of heaven. He is in control of everything that's happening to His people. And that's important. Because we don't see Nehemiah here blaming God for what's happening. We don't see him holding God accountable to what's taking place. He understands that God is in control, but he understands that it's Israel who is at fault. He understands that it's he himself who is at fault. And he also acknowledges that God keeps his covenant. Right? He told them in the Old Testament that if they broke the covenant, they would be taken out of the land. He knows that it's not God who has broken the covenant. It's not God who's been faithless. God has remained faithful throughout Israel's history. It is them who broke the covenant. And Nehemiah remembers that in his prayer as he seeks God on behalf of them. He also understands his place. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Right? God is Lord. Nehemiah is servant. God is Lord. Nehemiah is slave. He doesn't presume to have any other kind of relationship with God than servant. He knows that as he's asking God to work, he is completely at God's discretion. He can't tell him what to do. He can only ask. He also understands who has sinned. He confesses, says, the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. He knows that they are at fault. And he knows that he is at fault as well. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly, not God. He doesn't blame God for corruption. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statute, and the rules. He understands what's going on. He understands what's led to this point in their history. He knows why the walls are broken down and why the gates are destroyed and why his brothers are suffering great trouble and shame. It's because of what they've done. And yet he also has hope. He has faith 
because with the warning came a promise. Next, he's going to quote Scripture to God. He's going to refer to a couple passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus where he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what's happened. That's what Assyria did. That's what Babylon did. They scattered Israel among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts that could be exiles, are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God told Moses, if you break the covenant, you're taken out of the land. But if you come back, if you repent, if you confess, if you come back to me, then I'll bring you back to the land and I will make my name dwell there. And so as Nehemiah is phrasing, he's praying, he's acknowledging that all of that stuff that God said would happen to his people has happened to his people. Except for the promise. Except for the last part. Except for the fact that he would bring them back. And so he's asking God to do what he promised. He's acknowledged that God remains faithful even when his people don't. And he's asking him to continue to be faithful to them. As they try, as they attempt They make an effort to be faithful to him back. He says, they are your servants and your people who you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's remembering what God has done before when he brought them out of Egypt. He's asking him to do it again. Be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, which is what we're going to see next week. He's going to go to Artaxerxes. He's going to talk in his presence, which is reason enough just to have him killed. And yet what we're going to see is that the king grants him his request. But for now, this week, what we need to see is this overarching theme that God remains faithful even when we don't. And the reality is for us, is that what Nehemiah sees of this, what he understands of this is so much smaller than what we get to see in the gospel. Right? What Nehemiah sees is that God is going to bring the people back to the land. He's going to remain faithful to them even though he's broken the covenant. Even though they've rejected him and rebelled against him, he's still going to be faithful to them. That's what he sees. In the gospel what we see is that God remains faithful to his plan to redeem humanity by using our rejection and rebellion and execution of his son as the means to do it. Any one of us would absolutely understand if as God was going through that plan, what we see in the Gospels is Jesus is betrayed, as he's mocked, as he's crucified, as he's killed, any of us would understand him turning back, him saying that's too much. They're too faithless. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm going to stop it. Any of us would get that, and yet God doesn't do it. Even when we are at our least faithful, God is still always faithful. He remains faithful even when we don't. Even in the midst of our sin today, He's still faithful to us. His promises are still true. He still has provided us with redemption for our sin. We should understand so much more of God's faithfulness than Nehemiah did. 
because we get the ultimate picture of it. The cross is all of the proof that we need that God always remains faithful to us. Even when He Himself is rejected in the flesh. And so whatever we're facing, whether it's our continual battle with sin or stress from job or marriage or parenting or school or you know, worrying about how we're going to pay our bills, whatever the situation is that we're in where we question, is God faithful? Is He who He says He is? Will He remain steadfast? Does He love me? All that we need to look to is to see what He's done for us in the Gospel. And we know that He's always faithful, even when we're not. Especially when we're not. And that should be encouraging to us. That should cause us hope exactly like it did for Nehemiah. And like Him, we should ask God to show His faithfulness to us and to our brothers and sisters instead of just being focused on ourselves and what we're dealing with. And so today, as we take the Lord's Supper, uh, the stuff is all set up on a table back there. I think what it should remind us of today, you know, every week it reminds us that Jesus died for us. His blood was shed, His body was broken for us and for our sins. That is the picture, that is the proof that God remains faithful to us. But just like Nehemiah, it's also encouraging to other believers when we tell them stories of God's faithfulness to us. And so, like we did last week, where you, know, you went and you got the bread and the cup and then you found a small group of people, let's do that again today. And as we pray together, before you pray, tell them a short testimony, if you feel comfortable with it, of what God has done to show His faithfulness to you either in this past week or, or whenever really. Share that with one another. Not everybody in the group has to share, but it would be great if at least one person would. And then pray together. Thank God that He remains faithful to you even though you don't remain faithful to Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You that Your Word makes it abundantly clear to us that we deserve neither Your mercy nor Your grace. We don't deserve the amount of faithfulness You show us. And that only confirms exactly the kind of God You are. That You are Lord. You are God of heaven. You are great and awesome and You keep Your covenant. You keep your promises, you keep your steadfast love for your people. And we know that we have done nothing to deserve that. We only enjoy that relationship with you because of what Christ has done for us. And so Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that you allowed yourself to be killed. You allowed your blood to be shed and your body to be broken for us and for our sin to pay the penalty that we owe. And we thank You that even when we are most unfaithful, You still remain faithful to us. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.